Coming up on this episode of Up for Debate, it's our book club, episode two, and this week we're talking the book Console Wars. It's Sega versus Nintendo on this episode of Up for Debate. This is Up for Debate, episode number 95, recorded November 15th, 2017. We read Console Wars. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Up for Debate, the podcast that will talk about anything and does. I'm Sean Jenks, joined as always by my co-host, our very own resident game master. It's Matt Mariani. Hey, how's it going, Sean? Are you ready to get into a war today? I'm going to be fighting a war. A, a a battle for the ages. Yes, Matt, I am. I, I'm, I'm too excited, too ready, too hyped, to go, to talk about console wars. Yeah. Um, now, I so this book is quite a book for sure. It is. You know, I, I want to mention to people right up front, uh, this is the second edition of our book club where we pick a book and we talk about it throughout the episode. Uh, and I want to tease people because I think the last book we read was that episode was awesome. One of the best ones we did. Go check it out. It's episode number 88 when we read Ready Player One. Really good episode, really interesting book. We actually, Matt, you'll be happy to know, um, or maybe you'll be sad to know, I don't know, but uh, we had one of our rare YouTube comments. Oh, YouTube comment. Yeah, can you believe people actually do that? Always love those. Yes, and it was on the Ready Player One episode, which was a a nice treat, and the comment for that uh, reads... Shit, I don't have an inf- oh, man. I was trying to pull it up. Hang on, I'm gonna pull it up because it's a, actually a very nice comment um, from a fan. But hmm. YouTube doesn't. Sh- um, yes, uh, I think you all hit it on the head. It was a good story, but so poorly written. I can't wait for the movie. Parentheses the soundtrack at least. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Thank you to fan hey. Katie Molesky for giving us that that very nice comment on YouTube. Well, at least they didn't say this was a train wreck, so... Like most of our episodes. No, so these are good ones, because we come prepared, <laughs> we've read the book, Matt and I have both read the book. This week, we are discussing the book Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. This nice tome uh, I've got here, you can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold uh, that are on Amazon. And this book, uh, on a high level, chronicles the journey from about... I mean, it, it does span a long amount of time, but we'll say about 1989, 1990, through about 1994... Uh, the inside stories of both Nintendo and Sega as they battled head-to-head for video game dominance, Sega beginning with about 5% market share, peaking at about 55% market share, and then falling back to earth after that. Matt, what are your your sort of early, before we get into the story of the book, I guess maybe we can just talk about how we thought about the book overall, and that way if people haven't read it, we won't give away too many spoilers, they can at least listen to the first 10 or 15 minutes here, so... Overall, how did you like or dislike this book? Oh, I overall, I genuinely really enjoyed this book. And I I can't stress that word enjoyed enough that it really brought me it's it's the the first time in a really long time I can remember that reading this like a book truly brought me joy. Oh. It was a really a joyful a joyful read. I think that had to do a lot with the content, then really a perfect storm of the content. Like 
the nostalgia, the uh, uh, the hard-hitting facts, the like lightheartedness, as well as the narrative style. Um, I think that the the writer did a unbelievably masterful job with the uh, the telling of this story. Um, he told it in a very unique way, um, and uh, just the way that it was the way that it, the story was crafted and styled, like really was a pleasure to read. I can't stress it enough. It's a long book, um, and that might be um, a detraction for some, but it, it is. It was really a quick read. Like it was not um, not at all a laborious read. Um, the pages just kind of melted away. I was um, when I first received my copy. I looked at the cover, and there's a review from. Uh, there's a quote from Forbes right on the cover, or an author at Forbes magazine, and it says. It's far and away one of the best nonfiction books I've ever read. And looking at that, I was like, okay, sure. Like this guy must just be a really big video game fan, whatever. But then I saw that he's from Forbes and I was like, well, his opinion must carry, you know, some weight if he's writing for Forbes and uh, talking about a, um, he must be looking at it from an economics point of view, um, which this book really is, um, very much a uh, as much as it is like talking about video games. That's really fun. It also really delves into the economics of of the entire campaign, both Sega, Nintendo. It also talks about Sony, um, Philips Technologies, um, Atari. They talk about um, Microsoft a little bit towards the end. Like it, it really does kind of like involve. Um, and but it but it, it talks about their market share, about their campaign, their uh, marketing strategies, their their um, philosophies, and their approach to marketing. It's a it's a great book. Um, I highly recommend it. Going in, because um, uh, I really do I really think, do it, think it, it appeals to such a wide audience. You know, so those are generally my takeaways from the book. Um. I want to hear about your your side of uh, of all this, but really quick, I want to say that I think that the way the book was written, t- talking back about the narrative, um, really lends it a um, a a, a re- the readability of it a, a certain credence. Like, for example, the chapters are so succinct and compact, but they're short. The chapters themselves are short. There's many of them. There's many of these short little. It's almost like a, like a um, collection of essays that are kind of like tied together so that they're fluid. And I think that's really what the what the author does is like, aside from taking these conversations that happened when he was definitely not in the room when all these conversations are taking place, and he kind of like paraphrases almost on. Aside from that, the masterful like arcing of all of these little vignettes into like one cohesive story really makes the makes the reading fluid and at the same time covers a lot of ground in a way that is both engaging and informative. So that's how I felt about the book. Um, very easy read, very pleasurable read. Highly recommend it. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I would say my my pros cons is like eighty twenty to pros to cons. 
Um, I actually, uh, you, you had just discovered this book recently. I had read this about six months or a year ago, and so I reread it for the show, and it was just as enjoyable in the reread as it was the first time around. I agree with you. I think the chapter structure works well for the book. Um, I really like books that use chapters to their advantage. Um, and a, a good example from this book is there's one chapter that's two pages long. And it basically says, you know, a, a, an executive from a company comes in, is viewing the R&D development of a new product that's supposed to be very important for the company. And he hates it so much, he smashes it to pieces. And it's only two pages, but because it's so short, it's very... Imp and then the next chapter starts with the, the characters in another country hearing about that story. And so using the chapters as a literary tool, I think, worked to the advantage in this book. I'll also say writing the book in a narrative format that mixes dialogue with story elements and talks about characters' feelings. I've, I've read more than I can count nonfiction books about business history, which is kind of how I would categorize this general genre. The vast majority of them are very technical. And, and, and they say, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But this book is like, this is how this character felt about it. And these are how these characters interacted. They're characters. They're not people. They're characters. And it does create a very narrative feel to the book, which I think is very engaging and keeps you interested. It tells the book mainly from the perspective of one person, which I think is engaging. And, and I mostly agree with your point that to call this a video game book, I think, is a huge disservice. It's very much a book about business. It's a book about marketing. It is a book about video games. Uh, it's a book about technology. It just sort of spans so many genres so well. Now, if I had to get critical with it, um, I agree it's dense. And I think it's not dense in a good way because they kept... Oh my God, it was really irritating me. They kept doing this thing where they would go on tangents. This book loves tangents. I will pre-warn you because they'll, they'll do these things where it's like so-and-so executive joined Sega from Pepsi. Pepsi was invented in 18... And they tell the whole history of Pepsi. And I'm like, please don't do that. And by the end of the book, I was like... Because it was fun at the beginning when there were these little side stories. And by the end, I'm like, oh my God. You know, like, what my favorite had to be when uh, Nintendo goes to buy the Seattle Mariners and they give you the entire history of baseball in Seattle. And I'm like, I did not need to know that. Thank you. Yes. Interesting. Keep it to your, it's literally pages of this. I think that was the first reading that little snippet was the first one where I was like, okay, we don't really need to go into this. Like, this is not really that relevant. Yeah. It, it was a little much. I found the, the backstories for Nintendo and Sega themselves to be particularly very fascinating. Um, I had known about Nintendo's, but like Sega's evolution from selling, um, I think there was photograph, like it was a uh, photography machines or they would now they were selling, they would, it, there was a, a guy from Brooklyn who had established like a business setting up photography machines throughout Japan so they can get pictures taken after World War II of like, the pictures they needed for like identification and, and things like that. Um, and just somehow parlayed this, you know, into a jukebox company. And then eventually like jukeboxes gave way to like video game industry. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like the other tangents with the, you know, the Seattle Mariners or, you know, um, I think one of them, they talk about the history of, uh, I mean, I'm surprised, to be honest, they didn't talk about, like, the history of baseball itself and, like, just go for, like, half a chapter. But then you forget what you forget, like, it's just like a kind of like a rambling of, like, an old man. It's like 
oh, where was I again? Oh, yeah, that's right. We're at this dinner party. And uh, yeah, and then they circle back to the main story. But (laughs) but I will say that to this book's credit, those snippets as as often as they are, maybe a little too often, they are very well written and well researched. And I would say the majority of them are interesting. I just thought they did it too often. Um, and they could have really trimmed back the book by not doing that. So, uh, but I did like a, lo- a lot of them, especially, uh, you're right, as they go into video game history or like how Mario was created or how, you know, some of the like kind of sub stories that they get into, those are interesting when they're on the topic of the book. Yeah, I, I like how the, the these tangents that we call them, how they're woven throughout the story. While there are many of them, I think they're well spread out. Mm-hmm. Because they, they could have, I mean, if, if you're writing like a chronicle, I think what a lot of authors tend to do is they try to ham fist all of them into like one chapter or at least several chapters in the beginning or the like very end of a book. And they're like, by the way, here's the complete history. And they'll do like a whole chapter dedicated to like, here's the complete history of Sega. Yeah. Here's the complete history of Nintendo. We can compare and contrast the two. But that's very dry. What the author does here is he weaves them like significant points in the story, mm-hmm. almost like a little asterisk and like a little thought bubble emerges and is like, you can almost see, right? You can almost see the characters kind of like having this dinner conversation and then they all freeze. And then one of them like has like a little thought bubble. And then in the thought bubble is the, uh, the playing out of Nintendo's whole history. And then oh, yeah. they go back to the dinner party and it's, it's very fluid in that way. This book is very um, – it, it transitions di- different to different topics very well. Yes, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And again, I would say what interested me the most – and of course, this is my background. Uh, and this book, by the way, spoke a lot to me, A, as someone in marketing, and B, as someone who worked for a couple years – with a company based in another country and having to constantly deal with cultural conflicts. But this book really is, for me, a book about marketing and and the value of marketing. I I think if you wanted a history of video games, this does an okay job. I feel there are probably better books out there for that um, than Console Wars. But I think this, this tells more of the business side of each of these each of these, and and I will say, you know, we can start getting into the content of the book a little bit. The book is really told through the perspective of one man, for most of it. Um, and that's Tom Kalinske, uh, who in his career invented, uh, well, created the ideas for Flintstones chewable vitamins. Um, he worked on Barbie, brought that back from the dead, invented He-Man and the Masters of the Universe with Mattel, and then, of course, was hired into Sega, and that's where we began the story. Um and I will say, as I did enjoy the fact that the story kind of covered one person through the whole journey. However, I'm a little suspicious that he and most of the characters in the book got a little too rosy of, a, a, not a whitewash, but sort of a, a, a generous telling of their tale. And that's the downside of writing it as a story, is you can't have people... There has to be heroes and villains. There has to be antagonists and protagonists. And, and and a true straight nonfiction business book, I think, would do a better job of more accurately reflecting the pros and cons, the successes and flaws of the people. This book is more of a feel-good story, I think, than than it is a a true true hundred percent true to life story. Not that I'm saying I'm making things up, but it's just the the perceptions. Yeah, I think that it it really doesn't. The narrator doesn't really hold back 
with the David versus Goliath narrative, right? It's like very clearly this this tiny Sega going up against the industry giant Nintendo. Um, and they really do they do a good job, I think, of painting Nintendo as um not that not that they're like an evil empire. No, they're very but just fair. definitely the most very fair, but just definitely like the, the the big guys. They're the big guys. And Sega are very much the underdogs. This is very much an underdog story. Um, and you like that until you remember like if David beat Goliath, but then got beaten again by Goliath after Goliath woke up and yep. like shook it off basically. Um, but so that, that part it's, it's it like the book really, if, if I were to retitle the book, I'd probably retitle it like the rise and fall of Sega or something sure. like that. While it is definitely talking about the console wars, uh, between Sega and Nintendo, it, it's the, it is primarily the story of Sega. Well, it's told from their perspective, you know, going up, yeah, from their totally from their perspective. And I think that's something that you really can't get away from when you're writing a book like this. Um, like it, it really is a narrative told from one, one side. Um, and I'm glad they chose the side they did. Um, I think it, it, it would have been a very different book had it been read from, um, the perspective of Nintendo. I think it would have, it would have made for a, a very different book indeed, but I think this was really the only way to, to capture the whole scale, like, you know, battle, itself because i think from nintendo's point of view it was a massacre right well and that's one thing that interests me about this book is five years five years sega went from nothing to to majority of the market share to nothing i mean that's what's amazing about this story for me if you wrote a book from nintendo's perspective it would be eight times as long and would cover a hundred years because they and while i agree sega has history the only really interesting part certainly at least in america is that very short span in the early 90s. Nintendo, on the other hand, has gone up and has gone down and has gone up and has gone down. And I think we'll get a little bit into the different perspectives um, and attitudes these companies in how they operate. But I think Sega is the interesting half of this story. Nintendo just did their business. The whole point of the book is Nintendo didn't change. They just kept doing what they've always done. And then by the end, they do a little bit. But throughout the book, the whole point, Sega's the interesting part, who went from nothing and disrespected and nobody gives a shit to like blowing it out and again it's it's fun for me as someone in marketing to see these people do these crazy stunts and these crazy ideas and prove that it doesn't matter what product you have to some degree uh because nintendo debatably had a better product it was all about the marketing and it was all about the attitude and it was all about the 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 sort of uh, perception of their product in the market and Nintendo was comfortable to sit with the perception they had and Sega said screw you we're going to be loud and in your face and aggressive and we're not going to hold back and there's and it's that underdog story you're right I don't think there's any better way to say it they operated with that attitude which in some ways led to their downfall yeah uh, the book at some point in in the book I remember down but i remember like just thinking to myself as i'm reading like this actually would be a really cool field to get into this more like marketing um just 
from the perspective of of like viral marketing that that Sega engaged in and kind of like what they did with Walmart at one point in the book where they basically Sega flooded Bell. an entire town with with um marketing and uh they opened up a, a uh, like a warehouse that was basically just distributing like Sonic and Sega propaganda like 24/7 um, right in the town, right near uh, Walmart headquarters, just so they can try to convince Walmart to start selling their product. It was really interesting to read those those pieces, and it actually made me consider, like every time, like for, and I kid you not, from the moment I finished the book, um, every commercial I've watched on TV, I've looked at it from a more analytical point of view, from, from like the point of view of a marketer. I've never really done that before. I have to be honest, like, I think that like commercials are just something to be tolerated. I just have to sit through these commercials or it's an excuse for me to go up and get more chips or, or refill my water bottle or whatever. But like, I want to sit through the commercials and I want to look at like, okay, who is this appealing to? Why is it appealing to them? what about this commercial is unique and, and what is the, what is the um, seller trying to say about their product or like, how are they trying to frame it? How could they have done it differently? Um, as soon as I read the part where um, I think it's, it, it's not, it, I, I think it might be Kalinsky or it's somebody else on the Sega team get, they get the revelation that like, if we change the point of view of this commercial from like to the perspective of the consumer, then our audience can literally be anyone. You know, we don't have to pick a demographic. Nintendo has already picked a demographic. They want to sell to kids, to young kids. That's who's buying video games. But we have the freedom to let our consumer be anyone. It can be a jock. It can be a nerd. It can be a young kid. It can be a uh, middle-aged man. It could be a middle-aged woman. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, so they, when they shifted that perspective in the commercial where it's like a salesman trying to like get the person to buy, like really trying to push them to buying like a, an uh, SNES and, you know, the, the consumer is like, no, I'm still going to play my Sega they shift that perspective to the consumer and it can be about anyone like that part just kind of was a, a revelation to me. And I'm kind of like at that, from that point on, I was looking at commercials and being like analyst and being like, all right, what are they doing here? How are they, how are they making this work? So. Yeah. I mean, mar marketing is equal parts uh, art and science uh, to, to a large degree. And I loved one of my favorite, again, I'm biased because I'm marketing. Uh, I promise I'll stop saying that. One of my favorite parts of the book was when they talked about uh, deciding on a new marketing agency, a new, a new ad agency. And so they talked about going through and testing each of them um, and putting them through their paces. And they kind of go into how each took a different angle and why some worked and some didn't. One of my favorite parts of the book that the part that made me laugh out loud harder than any other part in this book, not that it was a particularly funny book, but um, was, do you remember the, the Whedon and Kennedy uh, video game speak that they pitched during their presentation? So this was, so Whedon and Kennedy was, uh, they're the famous ad agency behind Nike, Just Do It and all that. And as part of their presentation to Sega, they decided that uh, they were going to invent a new language called VidSpeak. 
uh, that was a new hip future is now language uh, that was the backbone of their campaign that teens and video gamers would use to describe things. And Matt, I'd like to read out loud some of these just to show you how tone deaf some people were about video games back in the early 90s. So these are some of the turns from VidSpeak, okay? Gearlets. The VidSpeak word for gamers, also known as gamelets, gamies, hoosies, vidiots, speaklets, bossaroos, and cluelets. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, mobile mover with wings. What gamers will call the Game Gear, or Sega's version of the Game Boy. Also referred to as the a to go cup, a mindorama, a home away from home, and a great thing to wrap your nozzles around. It's gibberish. It's all gibberish. Hedgy wedgy, <laughs> anything pertaining to Sonic the Hedgehog or to any fan of the of Sonic the Hedgehog. Also, that cute little way Sonic has of stomping his foot when he can't believe you're so slow and stupid. <laughs> uh, and there, there's a whole bunch of these, and you read it, and you're like. You, you, you give Sega so much credit because they saw the vision and, and the ad agency they ultimately pick with Welcome to the Next Level, which was their big marketing push. And, and Sega, you know, um, you, you really have to realize that very few people saw what Sega saw. They were a marketing company. And I really stand by that assessment. Video games were secondary. Their video games could have been great. They could have been terrible. I think at the end of the day, how much that mattered was less than people think. At the end of the day, they were a market. They could have sold shoes. They could have sold hamburgers. It doesn't matter. They were at the right place at the right time with the right cultural shifts. They understood it. They got the right people behind them. They built a good team. And that's what sold Sega, period. End of story. Because their hardware wasn't that much better, and their games were good. Sonic was good, but a lot of their games weren't. Well, I think a lot of it was also not uh, the marketing, not to take away from the marketing. The marketing was huge, but it was also the element of um, count, like counterpoint. Like, like Sega was really good at picking up on the faults of Nintendo and really paying attention to what consumers were lacking with Nintendo, like what consumers wanted from Nintendo, but were not getting, for example, they talk about how um, when the Nintendo was about to release their, their SNES, their super Nintendo and the super Famicom, how opponent to the console that, um, like they, they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to play games from the the previous generation, the previous um, Famicom and the previous the original Nintendo, um, and parents were kind of up in arms about this. Like, what do you mean we just spent all this money on this console? Now my kid wants the new one that's coming out, but what do you mean we can't play all these old games anymore? Why? So we have to have two consoles now? Like, what? Did they, that was kind of kind of crazy back then. Like, you know, you had one television set. Yeah. You have one refrigerator apply. Like, why do you need two consoles? Like one VCR, you know? Um, so most households were upset with this, but what Sega does, they come out with a, an adapter. Okay. An adapter for their new console, the Genesis that allows you to play games from their previous console. Um, uh, but now what they, what they, uh, what they kind of glossed over in the book, they mentioned it, but they kind of were like, uh, gloss over it a little bit is that um, this particular piece of hardware uh, is only found in select stores 
not every retailer will carry it. It's mm-hmm. really just specialty and technical stores that you where you would find it. And it also, um, I think it cost like $50 or some, some kind of, the cost was very high for this particular product. But the point was not that, just that something like this existed, not that it was popular, not that it was like, we're going to sell a million of these little adapters because we're, or, you know, we'll, we'll package them in with our console or anything like that. The point was we have them available. Yes. So if anybody complained, it's there. It's the appearance of freedom. It doesn't matter whether or not you actually have it. Exactly. And that, that was a huge, I think a huge, um, a huge boon for, for Sega, or at least a huge uh, strategy that they had was just take, take Nintendo and kind of just like treat it like a punching bag and like, see what's going to fall out of it. Um, yeah. The example of uh, at the tech shows where they would, they would put, um, they would put both games side by side and it, the uh, spectators would come in and, and at some point they, at first they just got to watch like snippets of each game. And then eventually they got to actually play it on their own. And of course, like in that little snippet of time, they're going to find Sega to be the, or they're going to find Sonic the Hedgehog to be a much more engaging game because mm-hmm. it goes fast, it goes around the rings and it's much more like thrilling, I guess, exhilarating than Mario is. Um, but it's it was really like taking it was it was just kind of highlighting the weaknesses that you find with Sega, I mean with Nintendo, and like really exploiting them. That I think they did a great job at. Another example, um, you know, when when they had the um, the boxers, the, they they had Mike Tyson's Punch Out for Nintendo. So of course uh, Sega goes and gets their own boxer, Buster to, Douglas. Yeah, Buster Douglas to to uh, headline their game and. Uh, Joe Montana versus John Madden. Um, so, of course, they had to have, they had to kind of go like tit for tat and 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 really kind of it seemed like exploit the weaknesses of Nintendo. Well, you know, I would say I think that the say, book really the book well the story really, well the story it really reminds really you of, reminds the of the point that, point that it's really important for uh, let, let me say it this way the underdog is always in an easier position. It's harder to stay on top than it is to be the underdog. The underdog is a huge advantage for any company. And I think Sega really has that going for them because uh, it's hard to stay on top. And I think by the end of the book, what's interesting, when Sega is debatably on top, or at least as on top as they'll ever be, and Nintendo is in many ways the underdog, that's when Nintendo gets serious because they are the underdog and you're punching up and you see what the other company is doing and can respond and you're not in a leadership position. So you can follow things up and say, oh, people don't like that. We're going to do the opposite. And for Sega to be in that position was a huge advantage for them. And they took advantage of that and they really rolled with it. Um, it reminds me a lot of, you know, I used to work for a $50 billion global company who for decades had no competition. If you wanted I mean, they patented the hell out of everything. If you wanted what they sold, you came to them and they could charge whatever they wanted and it didn't matter. And they just raked in profits for decades. And then all of a sudden, patents start expiring. Competitors, the technology to do stuff gets cheaper. Competitors start opening. And you know what? They didn't know how to compete. They didn't lower their prices fast enough. They didn't invent new products quickly enough. They just sat and tried to collect money on what they had been doing forever. Turns out it's not a great plan, and the competitors gain market share, and pretty soon you're scrambling to play 
ketchup. And I truly, and I, and I want to ask you this question a little bit, Matt. We're jumping ahead to the end of the book. But I, I really want to think about, I, I think it's clear why Sega succeeded. And I think we talked about that a bit already. But I want to talk about why Sega ultimately failed. And I think that if you, if you read the book's perspective, they really pin a lot of that on Sega of Japan and the relationship between America and Japan. Um, and they target it a lot on Nintendo getting serious and Sony coming into the market. And I'll just say from my perspective, and then I want to hear your thoughts, I think, I think they give Sega of Japan a little too much credit for this, I really think they underplay Sony's involvement in the downfall of Sega. The problem with this book is, is it ends, I think, a little poorly. It ends like a story that we know the answer to the story. I mean, this book was only written a few years ago, so it knows what happened, right? But it finishes in a way like it had they, the guy wrote it in 1995 when he didn't know what was going to happen next. And I'm like, no, no, just tell us the actual story, which is... Sony came in, and then Microsoft came in, and Nintendo came in, and they just beat Sega to death. No, they kind of ended in, well, will Sega make it? And we're like, we know, they don't. Like, you know, don't, don't, don't well, screw with it. John, I think, I think, and I'm just speculating here, I know the author has a lot on his plate. They're in the process of making a uh, documentary slash film yeah. to go along with, um, to go along with this book. When they're done with that, my, my speculation is there will be a sequel. I hope so, because I'll I, read I'm it. I'm really thinking that the, that we'll get a sequel out of this. Um, and I think that in the, if I had to venture a guess, Console Wars 2, Sony versus Nintendo. Sony versus Nintendo and Microsoft. You know, three-way war. Uh, and I think that I think, I think they ended it in a perfect – they ended this book in a perfect spot to do that. Yeah, but that also to sucks. To pick it up where they left off. But that's also really it a sucks. bummer. Cool, which I'm I'm really hoping because, will happen. Because I, if I, think this, it, I think it will. If this book is about Sega, then it doesn't tell the Sega story properly because you don't wrap it up. That's what I'm... If it is really about the war between these two companies, I guess it ends okay. But it reads more like a story about Sega, and it does not wrap that end up for me. Especially because when you... It, it ends with Tom Kalinske leaving Sega, more or less. And that's not the end of Sega, it's the end of Tom Kalinske at Sega, and I guess that's kind of a, a shortcoming of the book, when you choose to focus it on a person, you have to follow that person with whatever happens, and when they're gone, the story ends. I don't think it would have been that, it wouldn't have been that much of a stretch to go a little bit further with that, like, they, they think after he left, there could have been, like, one or at least two more chapters where they talk about the aftermath. Like, I, I don't think that, I mean, he, yes, Tom Kalinske was an integral part of the book, much more so than I thought um, going in was going to happen. I, like, I, I really didn't get the sense that he was going to be the main character until about chapter five or six, when oh, I was like, okay, well, this guy's been in basically every chapter so far. So it's kind of told through his eyes pretty much. But I, I didn't think that it wouldn't. I didn't think it would have been that bad if they had had him retire and then kept the story going. Uh, no, it would have been like a. Um, but at the same time, I, I really do think. I mean, the ending was not not a hundred percent conclusive, but I think we really kind of saw the writing on the wall. Like Sega had been thoroughly like kind of outmatched by Nintendo at that point, and it, things weren't looking up at all. 
this book is about so. the, the rise and success of Sega. It's not about the fall of Sega. And it, it, yeah. the, the book wasn't 50-50 between those two things. It was more like 75% about the rise and 25% about the fall. So I think that was... But I think you're right, Matt. I think it does set up very well for a sequel. You know, they don't even touch the... If you're talking Sega, they don't even touch the Dreamcast, um, which didn't come out until, what, 98, 99. At the same time, the first Xbox was out. PlayStation 2 was just about coming out then. GameCube... You know, that, that sets up, I think, well for, for the sequel in that respect. That's going to be for Console Wars too. yeah. Um, granted, I, I don't really think they could have mentioned it because that was a completely different console generation. Oh, and it was much later in time. No, no, no. I'm glad they kept it to the time they that did. Was, yeah, that was Sega's really like kind of their last-ditch effort to come back. And it would be really interesting to, to see if they tried – any of the similar marketing strategies that they had, like if did they did they reach back in the old playbook and pull out a couple pages from early '90s, late '80s Sega um, when they marketed the Dreamcast? I, my guess would be no, because I think the Dreamcast would have broken a um, would have kind of broken in a little bit better than it did in that generation. That was very much a third or even fourth tier console. Yeah. Um, but, but no, I, I learned a whole bunch of things from this book that I had, I had never known. I think what was, what a really cool, um, what was a really, a, a, just a really cool thing to, to, to experience while reading this book was that all of these things you kind of vaguely remember, just given the benefit of having lived in the early nineties, like you remember, the aftermath of it all, we were, we're a little bit young for it, but we remember like, you know, we know things like it. Like I could, I could totally see someone who experienced the whole like Mario versus Sonic battle on the playground or at recess or whatever at lunch with their friends. Um, but you don't know what you experience when reading this book is, is that you don't know when you're going through it is that it's, there's this whole world happening behind the scenes that is just so fascinating, or at least it's painted in such a fascinating way. Um, these, these, you know, big figures like kind of pulling the strings and behind the scenes, making things happen. Um, it really does make you think about the, like, you know, commercials, back then commercials now like yeah. advertising marketing the whole thing it's very interesting well and that's why i love this genre of book um the, the sort of business history nonfiction, uh because it does really bring you inside something you've only seen from the outside a, a book I, I know i've mentioned you i think i picked it on don't panic uh, disney war which is another great book tells the story of Michael Eisner's tenure at Disney and, and tumultuous. And we as outsiders, we know, oh, the rise of Disney animation in the 90s and the bomb that was Euro Disney and and how he was ousted and all this stuff. But when you read it from the inside and all the behind the scenes stuff, it's like, whoa, like this is so much bigger than you could have ever imagined. And there's so many great little tidbits in this book that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. And I feel like I took a lot away from this as someone who works in business and marketing and sales um, and just a lot of, you know, and, and I, I kept a few notes while I wrote this, but I wrote down like 
the power of the story. This was something Sega was very big in in their marketing that with Sonic and some of these other things was we, we don't just sell games. We don't just sell us. We sell a story. And when you're crafting marketing or a product, you have to, to tell a whole narrative around it as to why someone would want it. What is it? What's the purpose? This gets into you, Matt. What, what's in a commercial? Who are they going after? What are they trying to say? What are they saying implicitly? But also, what are they trying to say, you know, subconsciously in in that ad? It's it's the power of the story. And that's marketing 101 stuff right there. That's huge, huge, hugely important. Yeah. Um. It's like when they they were um, trying out the uh, librarian commercial. Remember that one where the Sega librarian, like, why can't you just be like that nice boy Mario? Like, um, you know, I think Tom Kalinske was upset at that. He didn't he didn't really understand it. He didn't really understand the who is this speaking to, like. What are we like? What is our message in this, and and who are we delivering it to? It's very unclear. It's kind of like, you know, it's it's one thing to mock a competitor and to like, you know, uh, Sega does what Nintendo don't, but what does that even mean? Like, what does Sega do? Mm-hmm. You know, like what does Sega do that Nintendo can't? You know, like, um, and with the back to the librarian commercial, you know, what uh, who are we speaking to here? why does it have to be an old librarian? Like why it just kind of, it's, it shouldn't just be like commercial for the sake of having a commercial. It should be like you said, having a message. So, um, and I think that after they reflected on a little bit and they kind of had this realization that Sega can kind of just be whatever it wants to be, and that's okay. You know, it, it, it can appeal to just about anyone. And all that really matters is driving home that, you know, anybody can own a Sega. Anybody can enjoy a Sega Genesis. It doesn't really have to fit a perfect market genre. It was very much like a counterculture thing that um, was just really interesting to see. I think it, it, it changed a lot of uh, – definitely changed a lot of perspectives from uh, – um, industry, um, and, and who to market to. Yeah. Well, and I think, and I want to give Nintendo some credit as well. I know we've given a lot to Sega, but you know, this sort of the, the book and really the whole story is framed around choice versus control. Cause Sega is, is the company of choice. They'll put any game on their console and they want people to be able to buy it wherever. And they don't care. They want to work They want to partner with everybody. And Nintendo is framed as really the opposite. They want to control everything. But I think Nintendo deserves some credit because as I'm reading this book, they were really ahead of their time on a lot of these things, asking Target to implement the 90-day return policy at a time when nobody had a return policy. Now that's standard. They also talked about how Nintendo wanted to build their own warehouses and control logistics. That's Amazon's whole business model. And Nintendo was doing it first. And I think there were, you know, the quality seal... Um, and choosing the, the quality of their products and ensuring everything, in, triple inspecting them to make sure they worked every time. Nowadays, a lot of these things are common and in many times expected, but when Nintendo did it, it was new. And, and, and the, hotline. The, the, the Nintendo Hotline, uh, Nintendo Power mm-hmm. Magazine, mm-hmm. a lot of these things they did was, for me, Sega was trying to reach customers, 
get their message heard. For me, Nintendo was trying to make relationships with their customers. And that is a huge difference because, yeah, people will say they like Sega and Sonic better. But I have a feeling if you surveyed back then the loyalty, I think... Nintendo probably would have won, and I think that there's something so valuable in that, and to be honest, I think that is a key reason why Nintendo is still as big as they are today, despite their successes and failures along the way, that they're still way more relevant than Sega's because that they've really cared about the product. It's not about the marketing. It's about the product first and foremost and about building relationships with their customers. That was a great takeaway, I think, from the book. Yeah. That... that um. That whole thing, I think that's actually one reason that, you know, Nintendo outlasted Sega in the end. It has to do a lot with building up that loyalty with their customer base. Um, you know, the Sega um, appeal, you know, we're, we're going to try to appeal to everyone here and make everyone... Um, you know, Sega can be for anyone really almost kind of backfired on them in the end, because without a clear cut share of the market, without like a clear demographic, they didn't really know how to tailor their games. Their games were kind of like, like, you know, I think that they were more of like a novelty, like, okay, like a 30 year old is going to have fun with Sonic the Hedgehog for like, six months or maybe a year or two, then put it down and never touch it again. It's going to collect dust. Whereas if you really get a kid from when they're young, and this is where Nintendo succeeded in spades, I think get a kid when they're young to purchase a Nintendo console to fall in love with their games. You've got a fan for life. And then every time you update your console, I mean, I think the, the proof is in the pudding. We still see like, our generation is going nuts for this uh, Nintendo Switch. And we're in our late 20s, mid to late 20s, right? And and we're buying Nintendo Switches that, you know, we, we're, we're the console that grew, we're the generation that grew up on this SNES and, and um, many of us with the N64 as well. Uh, so really, Nintendo, when they focused on and they said, we're going to get interested and that's going to be our, our niche. That's going to be our target audience. I think that really proved to be a huge advantage for them. Yeah. Huge advantage. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, and I think, I think that, you know, Nintendo has had a lot of failures over the years. I mean, they really, you can look at the GameCube, which, eh, you know, failure might be a harsh word, but certainly not a, a big success. Um, the Wii U, of course, the Wii, a big success, Wii U, not so much. Um, and the Switch now being a big success for them. I just think when you built a when you build a company that's only speed is full speed and their only goal is growth, you're gonna run into problems. Nintendo is a company built for the long haul, and I feel like Sega just put all their chips on the table too much, too fast, and it worked in the short term. But there was no growth strategy, and and I do want to circle back Most to this point. There seem to be like there's no sustainability at no. all. For, well, no, because you can only be flash in the pans. Eventually, go out, right? You 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 can't. You you only have so many good ideas before you can start running out of them. But one thing I do want to circle back to is that they had a much tougher time than Nintendo in dealing with 
Sega of dealing with Japan, Sega of Japan, and the sort of conflict between Japan and America, and the different attitudes and how Japan was very supportive of them early on and as they were growing, but came to resent their success. And really, if there is a villain in this book, in a lot of ways, it's Sega of Japan more so than Nintendo, I would argue. Um, and I think the the sort of at odds relationship is really a a big part of what just ended up crumbling for Sega. Businesses, international businesses, just cannot work in the way that Sega of America and Sega of Japan were working. Yeah, I I would say that Sega of Japan, if if it was the case that they were painted as the villain, I think it's only because of the perspective the story was told. Like it was very much told from Tom Kalinske's point yeah. of view. So ergo Sega of America's point of view. Um, so, you know, obviously a lot of the decisions, Sega of Japan being very conservative and very, um, you know, trying to take the more, um, the more culturally, I guess what they viewed as the culturally honorable approach, whereas like, don't go after your competitor or like, don't directly like insult your competitor. Like don't stoop to like, a level lower than them or however they worded it in the book. Um, it seemed like Sega of Japan really was, yeah, like, like almost undoing a lot of SOA's success by the end of the book. Um, almost, it almost, it looked like it almost had to like Sega had almost defeated itself in a way or just kind of hamstrung itself. Uh, to the point where they couldn't compete with Nintendo anymore. Um, but I do, I want to go back to a point you had in the beginning of the episode where you said that you felt like they gave SOJ too much credit. And I think that that was totally correct. I think that the book really does kind of give um, Sega of Japan a lot of credit in this in this um, downfall. I think it really was ultimately just this this introduction of, of um, the PlayStation, of the Sony... Sony's on um, the N64 as well and the Nintendo 64 and, and Sega not having hardware ready to go. I mean, if if they had had the Dreamcast in 95 instead of 98, you know, maybe maybe it would have been a different story. But Saturn was uh, was a disaster, you know, and that's when it's so competitive and moving so quickly in, in an industry that's very cyclical and planned cyc- cyclical. Right. It's not like you can come out. Oh, Saturn flopped. We'll have another thing in six months. No, you got to wait three years before you can have the next thing come out. And then all of a sudden, bam, you're stunting their growth. And there's no amount of marketing that can save you from a product the industry and the consumers consider dead on arrival. Well, 100%. I think that Sega didn't build up the credibility and the like with the, the credibility and loyalty with the fan base that Nintendo had and the sustainable model that Nintendo had, because for, I mean, just looking at it for an example, like when the, when the Wii U came out just a few years ago, that was a huge crash, huge disaster for the, for the Nintendo. Um, and you know, they're able to survive it. They were able to get through it. And, um, but they hadn't built up that brand loyalty. That's what seemed to be really important. I think it took, it took a few generations for Nintendo to, to really establish and drive home that uh, consumer loyalty that we were talking about before. Well, um, and I think that really contributed more than anything to the, to the, the downfall of Sega ultimately. I, 
I think a lot of it too was Sega, I mean, you got to give them credit. They were a risk-taking organization and it worked in their marketing. Didn't work for their products because they were spending so much time and money focused, at least in the Americas, on there's a part in the book where they talk about, oh, what they thought their paths to success were. And I looked it up. It's video games on demand with with Sega Channel, where they would deliver games over cable, which, good idea, way too early on. Uh, Sega CD and lifelike games, good idea, way too early on. Sega VR, good idea, way too early on. (laughs) Um, Their um, educational tablet device they were building, good idea, they were too early. So it's good for companies to take risks. I think that's a great idea. But you have to have stuff for now in addition to what you're building for the future. If you're just looking ahead, it's going to go right it's going to go right past you and you're going to miss it. And I think that was a big miss for them. And I don't know, some of that blame does fall on Sega of Japan. I don't think all of it. I really don't. Because it was it was America who said, we want the risky stuff. It was Sega of Japan who said, we're okay just kind of iterating and making it a little better. And I maybe you need something in between. But, you know, this book, it was funny. I, I talk about a, not to make this all about me, but um, talk about a book hitting close to home. I was reading it on an airplane flying to the Netherlands for my international job uh, at a company I hated working at was thinking of leaving. And and this book hit a little close to home because I know exactly how these guys felt when you're trying to deal with a, a, you know, there's nothing wrong with different cultures. In fact, that was, I liked many aspects of that, but when they decide to be dominating and not allow you to localize your product and your offerings um, and not willing to, to take input and advice from the market they're trying to reach, um, and it was even more extreme in my case because it was Saudi Arabia, which was even sort of uh, less inclusive, I would argue, than Japan. Uh, it, it's really no surprise to me that the outcome was what it was with Sega. Um, and I think Sony has learned this lesson. I think Nintendo has learned this lesson. And it's just Sega didn't in time. Yeah, that part of the book was really... Interesting. I, I don't have the same experience as you do, but um, obviously, but the uh, just learning the the back and forth kind of this tennis match between um, it was almost like Sega of America wasn't just fighting against Nintendo. They were fighting against Sega of Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked how a lot of the like every time somebody was about to insult Sega of Japan, they would always start the sentence with like. But which you always know kind of means like it's like a little bit of a, of a warning, like, but they would, you know, they would start, they would be like, I'm not racist. I, 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 you know, I, I value the culture. I understand why they're doing it this way, but it's just not going to work if we don't adapt it to um, an American audience. I mean, you saw with Sonic the Hedgehog, like the, the, the Japanese interpretation of Sonic the Hedgehog was, way different and would would never have got off in the uh, late 80s um in in the reagan the reagan days would have never been a, a popular cat with the leather jacket and the the boobalicious girlfriend as we'll say like <laughs> it would it would have never it would never happen so they like sega of america really had to take the risk and really had to kind of put its foot down you know this is the way it's going to be and you're just going to have to deal with it. But then again, Sonic wasn't a huge commercial success in Japan the way that he was in America. Yeah. Um, 
which was another really interesting kind of uh, tidbit I learned from the book. So, yeah, I'm 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 right there with you. So, Matt, we're just about out of time. For can you believe it? Time is just fl- an hour. We've gone an hour. Time has just flown by. Now, I don't. Did we do like a a rating scale at the end of the last book club episode? I don't remember how we ended no. up. I don't think we did a rating. I think we just kind of. We just, we just kind of did our pros and cons. Okay. Well, Matt, I, I would like us to do our pros and cons, but I think we need like a rating scale because we got to quantify okay. how good this book was. So tell me what you think of this. I, I always like the buy it, rent it, skip it scale that they use for movies. So I was thinking, is this, in your mind, is this a bookshelf book? Is this a Kindle read it once and forget it book? Or is this a wait till the movie comes out, skip it book? I got to say, uh, I don't, I wouldn't usually say this about a book in this genre, uh, but it's just got so much readability. I got to say, keep it. I got to say, this is one for the bookshelf. I actually thought about that before the merits of Kindle, read it once, forget about it versus buying the hard copy. I erred on the side of buying the hard copy and I don't regret it. Um, I can see myself rereading this book. Uh, I can see myself recommending it to everyone. Um, not just if you're interested in video games, if you, if you, if you have ever really interested about interested about learning about marketing as a whole, like, or economics or finance, anything like this is a great book to get into that world to like kind of explore. It's a good introduction. Um, so I got to say, keep it. I got to say, I can see myself rereading this book. Like it's, it's just that good. Like it's just, it's just a very entertaining book. So, yeah. And I'm going to agree with you. It's, it, it is on my bookshelf and it is a bookshelf book. And I will, I, I think I'm with you that this is a, a lot of things for a lot of people. This is a good nonfiction gateway drug book. I think our, our mutual friend and fan of the show, Dan Miller, I know is reading at the same time. I hope to have him on the show tonight, but he was unavailable. Um, and he's enjoying it as well. And he almost never reads nonfiction. So I think the, and he also recommends very good books and he recommends this. So that should say something, but I think what flaws it does have are easily overlooked. And I just think that there's enough in it for everybody. And it reads so easily. I would say, be aware, take your time reading it. It is a long read. It is a thick book. It's an enjoyable read. Not the kind of thing you want to read in a day. You really want to take your time and enjoy it. There's a lot to absorb in there. Um, I agree, as someone who has reread it, very rereadable, uh, which is very important for me in a book. I reread books all the time, so very important. I, I just wanted to, I wanted to add in, yeah, just to add on to that point. Like, it's it's one of those. It really is one of those like stereotypical like page turners, like um, very aptly named. Like you want to you want to keep reading, but at some point you just can't keep reading. Like, yeah. It really isn't a book you can knock out in like a day or no, two. You got to really give it some time. It can get overwhelming, especially with all the data points and facts they throw at you. It, you can just get you can get a little burned out. Um, but that doesn't mean the next day or even a, a couple hours later you won't want to pick it up again. So I bet, and I'd be curious. I I I bet this book would make a good audio book, and I haven't tried it. I've heard I've heard the audio version. I do have a coworker that recommended the audio version, and he said it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, 
I mean, it, it is, it's told in a way that you could picture somebody reading it to you, like, you know, just kind of telling this, this, you know, fantastic story about a video game company that, uh, that made it big and then lost it all. Yeah, there. Put that blurb on the back cover. Uh, yeah, no, I I agree, and I'm excited for the sequel. You know, Matt, we should we should we should retcon our last episode a little bit here, because um, we never did rate Ready Player One on our on our new on our new own it, rent it, skip it scale. Um, so for folks maybe who didn't listen to that episode or were curious about what we thought, just quickly, how would you put Ready Player One on that scale? Eh. Um. <laughs> Ready Player One, I would say uh, rent it. That's a rent it one. That's one for your – just put it on your Kindle, read it. And then um, I really – honestly, just 100% honesty, I don't see myself ever going back to that book again. I don't think I would I would pick it up. Yeah. It's a good – Maybe it, if there's a sequel. No, nah, I, I still – I think that's one – I'm perfectly okay with just reading the Wikipedia article to refresh my memory. Not to say I won't get the sequel. If there is a sequel, I'll probably end up renting that one too. But I don't put I wouldn't put a whole lot of stock into that one. Yeah, I agree. It's it's a good borrow it from a friend type book. Like you don't need to buy it, but if your friend has it, yeah, borrow it and read it. So I'm I'm with you there. Um, You don't know how to spend that one little Audible credit. got too much audible credits and and you just don't know what to do with one of them i found myself in that spot you know i got an audible credit i really need to get an audio book okay ready player one boom yeah it's popular people that's like it. yeah yeah cool all right matt well we got to wrap it up because we're we're actually over an hour so we're 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 due for a conclusion here uh our second book club i think another rousing success i don't know what book we're going to read next uh, but we will be doing another one of the. I like these. I, I don't read normally, so this is a nice change of pace. Um, and and you've done great because you picked two books I've generally enjoyed, um, maybe of mixing quality, but I generally have enjoyed. So um, I'm nervous about when I get to pick the first book how that'll go over, but <laughs> we'll have to see then. However. We're going to conclude this time. Of course, our website, upfordebate.tv, has all the episodes we've ever done, including Ready Player One, but also all the other episodes. You can check it out there. We're on all the major platforms, so be sure to subscribe. Get the latest episodes when they become available, uh, and the video version is on YouTube as well. Be sure to check out last episode, which is our movie draft. A lot of fun. We're doing the movie league all winter long at upfordebate.tv slash movies. Of course, follow us at upfordebate.tv on Twitter, and you can email us upfordebate.tv at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us today. On behalf of Matt, I'm Sean. Thanks, everybody, so much for joining us. Hope you had as much fun as we did. And we'll see you next time for more discussion of God knows what here on Up for Debate.